Good morning. Good to see everybody here this morning. Hey, guess what? It is September. That means it is a fall month. I'm super excited about that because of one reason. Pumpkin spice. <laughs> Everything uh, that you can possibly put pumpkin spice in, donuts, coffee creamer, anything, I am all about it. So I'm super pumped today, and I hope you are as well. So um, you probably recognize, maybe you recognize, maybe you don't, what's on the screen. That is a picture of what remains of the Berlin Wall. The Berlin Wall fell several decades ago, but after World War II in 1945, Berlin was divided into, uh, Berlin was the capital city of, of the nation of Germany. Uh, Berlin, the, uh, the, the city of Berlin was divided after World War II into four occupation zones between the French, the British, the United States, and the Soviet Union. A couple years later, I think it was 1948, uh, France and Britain and the U.S. united their uh, occupation zones to make one single entity uh, in what's commonly known as West Berlin, West Germany. Uh, and, and at this point, uh, there's, there's much tension that's building between the uh, Western allies and the Soviet Union, and eventually East, the East, East Germany, uh, occupied by the Soviet Union, uh, be, uh, constructed this 25-mile wall that extended all the way through the heart of Berlin. And it was, it was actually longer than that in its entirety, but in the city it was about 25 miles that went through uh, Berlin, and it physically divided uh, it was a dividing marker. It divided East Germany, East East Germany from West Germany, East Berlin from West Berlin. Those from the east could not cross over to the west and vice versa. The Berlin Wall, it was a symbol. It symbolized many things. It symbolized a much larger iron curtain that separated east from west. It was a symbol of a cold war that existed between two groups, and it was a symbol of hostility. It was a symbol of animosity. It was a symbol of division between two ideologies, between two groups of people. We might look at this and say, how very sad, how, what, a, what a horrible contraption that human beings could devise. However, there exists a very similar wall within every human heart. It's a wall that separates it's a wall that fragments. It's a wall that isolates us from one another, people one from another. It's a wall that breeds suspicion. It breeds prejudice. It breeds distrust. It's a dividing wall that's characterized by hostility. And if you look closely at human nature, you'll see that we create, we as human beings, we create walls such as this, everywhere. We create walls over differences in culture, in speech, in appearance, in skin color, as we see time and time and time again. We as human beings create walls when my ideas, my worldview doesn't align with those people's ideas and those people's worldview. 
We create walls uh, when we're ill-treated by someone in some way. If you look at every human society, every human civilization, you'll see that there's some kind of wall. There's some kind of wall that exists uh, that separates and fragments and isolates so that we see one another as less than what we are. The Apostle Paul talks about these walls in the book of Galatians chapter 5. In fact, he tells us these, these walls are what uh, they, they are uh, the, the crux of our sinful desires, the sins of the flesh, the works of the flesh, the desires of the flesh. In verse 19 of Galatians chapter 5, 19 and 20, Paul says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, characterize human nature across the board, across cultures, across societies, and across civilizations. And more than likely, you yourself have been touched in some way by a wall that someone has put up against you, or you yourself might even have a wall in your own heart that you've placed against someone else. That's human nature. That's what the Bible tells us. That's what we've become because the power of sin has been unleashed in the world. And what does the power of sin do? It divides. It separates. It creates enmity and hostility and animosity and jealousy and fits of anger and all of these sins of the flesh. However, the blessed gospel The blessed good news of peace, the gospel of Jesus Christ is that Jesus, the one that we worship and serve, has come to tear down these walls that we create in our minds and in our hearts. Jesus has come to tear down the dividing walls of hostility that remains within the human heart, creating this new kind of existence, this new humanity, a humanity that's marked by peace and unity with one another. And that is what I want to talk about this morning in our passage in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, as Luke read for us a moment ago. So take out your Bible with me and turn there to the book of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. We see here that the good news of Jesus Christ produces this kind of peace and unity. As we look at the theme of unity without within the, in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, unity is a big deal. It's a big deal within the entirety of the New Testament because it's connected to the gospel message itself. Unity is connected to the gospel message. 
That's what we see in this passage. Now, first of all, before we dive into these verses, I want to back up and just give some background information about what we see previously in verses 1 through 10 of Ephesians chapter 2. Now, remember from previous Bible study that Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, Paul highlights this marvelous salvation that God has brought through Jesus Christ. He says that we were were dead. We were dead in our sins and our trespasses before we knew Jesus Christ. We could not respond to God positively. We were dead spiritually. We had no spiritual kind of relationship with God without hope, uh, without promise in the world. We were hopeless and helpless without God. That was our condition before Jesus, but God, in verse 4, the famous words, but God in his abundant mercy and great love, he's made us, what has he done? He's made us alive. He's, he's resurrected us in Jesus, even when we were dead spiritually. He is, he's taken poor, helpless sinners like you, like me and raised us up with him to walk in this new kind of life, newness of life, so, so, that, so, so that we will marvel for all eternity over the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness extended to us through Christ Jesus. What we see in this passage in verses 1 through 10 is Paul indirectly alludes to the fact that it's going to take us all of eternity in glory to fathom the kind of love and kindness that God has shown to us in Jesus Christ. No one in the here and now can look at His grace, can look at His mercy, and see it in His completeness. That's what we're going to be doing when we live with Him forever and ever and ever, ever, ever trying to fathom how great and marvelous this grace that we've been given through Jesus Christ really is. And all of that, all of that is because of His saving initiative. We didn't save ourselves, not by our own works. We access this grace through faith. The marvelous salvation that Paul expounds upon in verses 1 through 10. Now, what we see in the passage that I want to look at this morning, in verses 11 through 22, Paul transitions from that idea of God's marvelous salvation that we receive by grace through faith. He transitions his thought um, of this uh, salvation into what this kind of grace-filled salvation produces in the life of the Christian. We are about to see what God's grace produces in our relationship with one another. That's what these verses are all about. Look with me in verse 11 of Ephesians chapter 2. Therefore, Paul says, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. 
So in the first two verses in our passage this morning, Paul starts out identifying two groups of people that we see two separate groups, two uh, classes, two divisions of people. The first he mentions are the Gentiles. They're referred to as the uncircumcision. Uh, And of course, a Gentile is anyone that's not of Jewish descent. The uncircumcision, as the Jews would often refer to the Gentiles as. That's the first group, the Gentiles. The second group that Paul makes reference to in our passage this morning are the Jews. And they're referred to as the circumcision. Now, circumcision was a sign under the Old Covenant. It was a sign of fellowship with God. The Jews would practice circumcision to identify themselves as God's uh, chosen people, as God's people, as the community of those that live under the reign of God. That was the sign that you were, uh, that you had a, a covenant with God under the old law. It was the sign of circumcision. So we have Jews and we have Gentiles presented to us in the text. Two groups, two divisions, two classes of people. But notice with me, the kind of relationship that exists between those two groups, Jews and Gentiles. The Jews, as Paul says in the passage, they know the Gentiles, they refer to them as the uncircumcision. The uncircumcision. Those uncircumcised people. Now, this is not intended to be a compliment whatsoever. This is intended to be a derogatory term uh, in reference to that the Jews make in reference to the Gentiles. The uncircumcision, those people who don't know God and who are far from God and who are unclean. As we look in, at the relationship that existed between Jews and Gentiles in ancient antiquity, there, there's, there's basically no love. There's no harmony. There's, there's, there, there's no, no relationship like that that exists between Jews and Gentiles in the ancient world. In fact, a Jewish person uh, would most, often, most oftentimes not even offer aid to a Gentile in, under any circumstance. Even if a woman was giving birth and needed help, a Jew would say, no, filthy, filthy, unclean Gentile would not even, not even get close to that. Um, Oftentimes, marriage of a Jew to a Gentile was seen as the equivalent of a death. (laughs) And there are actually uh, recordings of uh, of Jews that would have mock funeral services for one who would marry a Gentile. Like, it's worse than death if you marry one of these people, because that's how horrible they are. Uh, and, And likewise, to even enter a Gentile house would render a Jew ceremonially unclean. So to say that there was hostility between these two groups, animosity, division, would be an understatement. There are those things that exist. But the hostility that exists between Jew and Gentile it's not, Paul, Paul isn't just talking about Jew and Gentile, but rather he's highlighting the same kind of hostility and animosity and drive toward division within humanity in its entirety. That's what we see 
in human nature. We see hostility. We see animosity. We see division. We see people making classes and groups and divisions and looking at the other side as undesirable or not like me having no peace in the world. And what does it lead to? It leads to war. It leads to devastation. It leads to heartache. It leads to pain. But what we see in our passage, what we see through the actions of this Jesus, of Jesus Christ, we see a break in the division that existed from the beginning of sin and a death blow to the animosity that exists within the heart of humanity. Look with me in verse 13 of chapter 2. Verse 13, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Notice with me that in verse 13, verse 13, it kind of echoes the same dramatic turn that we see in verse 4 of Ephesians chapter 2. Very famous passage in verse 4. We've read it many times here from the pulpit. But God... But God, even though we were dead in our sins and our trespasses, but God, verse 4, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Christ's accomplishment in verse 13, what we see here, it carries the same weight of significance as the marvelous grace he gives to those who are spiritually dead in their sins in verse 4. We see the same kind of dramatic shift, the same kind of dramatic turn in verse 13 as we do in verse 4. And the dramatic turn is this. Jesus didn't die for a select group of people. He didn't die only for Jews. He died for those who were far off, the Gentiles as well. His blood, the blood of Jesus Christ, what it does is it draws people near to God. It brings people near to the throne of God, both Jew and Gentile, those separated from one another and hostile toward each other. Brothers and sisters, That's the power of the blood of Jesus Christ. It transcends, it goes beyond old divisions and old dividing lines and brings groups that are hostile in relation toward one another to the feet of the same Holy Savior. And notice what this Savior brings about in the hearts of of all of those who were at odds with one another. In verse 14 through 16 of chapter 2. Verse 14 says, For he himself, this Jesus, he's our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. What this passage tells us is that this Jesus makes peace possible where there was once hostility, where there was once a dividing wall of hostility in place. Brothers and sisters, that's the good news. 
That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because of Jesus' blood, he takes Jew-Gentile. He takes East-West. He takes educated, uneducated. He takes North-South. He takes Black-White. He takes us versus them and transforms the two into one man. A new kind of man. A new and completely different kind of humanity. A new race of human beings does Jesus Christ create because of his shed blood. The good news is that the dividing wall of hostility has been torn down, creating one new man. And this new mankind comes together to access the Father. Look in verse 17. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near, both Jew and Gentile, these two groups. In verse 18, for through him, through this Jesus, we both, these groups, Jew, Gentile, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So Jesus is a preacher of peace to Jew and to Gentile and to all peoples and groups who still have walls against one another, who still have barriers that divide each other. And when they both surrender their pride and relate to him like a little child relates to their parents in complete and utter dependency, when they embrace him, these two groups that were once at odds with one another, they go together to worship the one God of the universe. They're no longer strangers. They're no longer aliens. They're no longer foreigners in their relationship to one another who allow prejudice and, and suspicion and distrust to define their relationship. They're new. They're a new kind of person, a new kind of mankind. And together, they are a dwelling place for God Almighty. Last passage, verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but your fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. All throughout the Bible, God has always desired to dwell with His people. He dwelled with His people in the Garden of Eden. He dwelled with His people through the tabernacle and then the temple. But now that Jesus has come, He dwells in His once disunified, divided people who, uh, who, who existed in jealousy and fits of anger and enmity and strife towards one another. He dwells within them corporately. How glorious this is. This is absolutely amazing. We were once separated from God. We were once separated from each other. But God, but God in Christ Jesus has brought us near to Him and to one another and now dwells in every single heart of those who have submitted to Him through faith. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the gospel of peace. 
the good news of peace. Peace between those who were once hostile in their relation toward one another. A hostility that began when sin entered into the world that's now been defeated by the blood of Jesus Christ. And this unity, this peace that exists between groups that were once divided that now are joined together by the blood of Jesus is sweet and pleasant and beautiful in the eyes of God. The psalmist in Psalm 133.1 says, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. So unity, it's a big deal. It's a very big deal. Why? Why is it a big deal? Because it's connected to the gospel message itself. Jesus died and rose to create unity where there was once hostility. You know, Gospel unity, this kind of unity that we're talking about, it can't be manufactured. We're not talking about a unity that human beings create. We can't go down to the street to our Muslim neighbors and just create unity with them where God hasn't created unity. Jesus Christ creates unity, and He died. He bore the wrath of the holy God of the universe so that we could be united with God and we could be united together with our fellow believers. Unity is a big deal. Unity is a big deal because unity with Jesus, it means unity with Jesus' people. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 through 13, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or frees, free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. When we're baptized into Jesus Christ, when we put Him on, we, when we walk in newness of life and begin a relationship with the Lord Jesus in baptism, having His blood applied to our souls, we're not just being united with God. We're not only being united with Jesus. We're being united with Jesus' people as well. A baptism that's, uh, that's in the Lord, that, uh, th- that, that, is, that is done in the Lord, is a unity with God and a unity with those who likewise have submitted to God. Unity with Jesus means unity with Jesus' people as well. And lastly, unity is a big deal. God's presence is most intensely experienced in the unity of his people. Ephesians 2:22, the last verse in our passage, we are being built together into a dwelling place for God. Faith in Jesus Christ, contrary to what many people think and believe today. Faith in Jesus is not primarily an individual private like experience. It's a corporate. It's a communal experience. We together are the house of God. We are the dwelling place of God by the Spirit when we live together in this spirit of unity. But sometimes, sometimes we forget that unity is a big deal. Sometimes we forget that Jesus died 
to create unity. Sometimes we forget that unity with Jesus also means unity with Jesus' people. And sometimes we forget that God dwells in a united house consisting of all His people. I'm going to go ahead and wrap up the message this morning. Here it is. Here's, here's the message. If unity isn't a big deal to us, then a fortified church family that we've been talking about this whole year. We, we want to be a fortified church family, do we not? We want to be a family that grows in the Lord Jesus and that becomes a signpost to the rest of the world and says, hey, this is what God is like. We want to be, we want to reveal God, Jesus Christ, to this world. But that will never happen, church, if unity isn't elevated to a level of primary importance within our life and within our existence. If you don't love unity and elevate gospel-created unity in your life, you don't understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, we must be a people who exalt this gospel of peace this good news of peace that Jesus has come into the world to bring reconciliation. Reconciliation between God and man and reconciliation between man and man. We need to uphold this idea of Christian unity if we desire to be a fortified church. So starting today and extending uh, over the next few Sundays, uh, we're going to beginning a, be beginning a series on Christian unity uh, and connecting it to our theme uh, that we've been talking about this year. Uh, we're going to look at, we're going to see how this, uh, how, how unity is uh, one of the, if not the, greatest evangelistic tool that we have in reaching this world. And we're going to see what Scripture reveals to us on how to fight for the unity that we have, which is so very important. Unity is a big deal because unity is connected to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if we wish to be fortified and grow in the Lord Jesus Christ and to become all that He wants us to be, we need to have that same vision of peace and unity that Jesus himself has. This morning, if you have any need, uh, the invitation is extended to you to come forward and make your need known. Also, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, his blessed invitation is extended to you today. Believe uh, in, that, that he has come in the flesh, that he has died for your sins, that he rose on the third day to give his people new life. Believe in that gospel. Repent. You can come forward and confess your faith in him and be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins, beginning a relationship with him. This morning, if you have any need, why don't you come forward as we stand and as we sing.